Good morning and it's Monday morning the 26th of June and I'm Govindra Jethiraj coming to you from Mumbai India's financial capital. Our top stories what can Indian companies do for America? Investment bank Goldman Sachs says India will record the largest increase in global market capitalization share by 2075. It's raining initial public offers or IPOs. And it's raining the monsoons are here. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. What can Indian companies do for America? A much anticipated and by all means successful economic political visit by India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the United States has ended. Wall-to-wall coverage has followed every step of the visit including of course the address to the joint session of the US Congress on June 23rd. for the second time for prime minister modi an address which had economic overtones including a mention of supply chains and the strengthening of it partnerships in semiconductors farming and finance to mention a few several deals were announced and you would have heard of most of them quite likely some are significant like the f414 military aircraft jet engine deal between general electric or ge and hindustan aeronautics or hal india does not make fighter jet engines by the way NASA and ISRO will also collaborate for human space flight. Elsewhere, Amazon announced it would bring in another 15 billion dollars into India and Google said it would set up a global fintech operation at the gift city in Gandhinagar. Now come a few larger points and posers. What did India benefit most from here? The hard or the soft power? Or put differently, which of these factors powered this partnership or these series of new partnerships, including the presence of highly influential diaspora in business and public life? And I found this interesting and relevant because if you look at the future of the partnership, because deals, of course, happen even if heads of state don't meet, particularly if the underlying attraction for the market is strong. The business standards T and Nine N has argued that what is really working in the bilateral relationship is actually hard power. which is india's growing economic and military clout and the potential of its market nainan refers to it but the somewhat larger significance of the fact that india has ordered almost 1000 aircraft in 6 months time did not quite strike me till now as one of the biggest manifestations of india's presence at the global economic table in 2023 and then there is the military aspect the indian ocean presence the counter to china's expanding navy and the counter to china in general But as Nainan points out, it would be a more truly Indian soft power if the best and brightest Americans came to study in Indian universities and then queued up to get Indian passports. As things stand, he says, the most privileged Indians are sold in U.S. universities, the opportunities in America's tech company, the might of its financial system, appeal of popular culture, and then my term here, the quality of life. Now, how could this change? If so. Well there has been much said and written about the bilateral relationship in recent days but not so much on this particular aspect of the relationship Manjeet Kriplani executive director of Gateway House which works at the convergence of business and foreign policy and also former India bureau chief at Business Week magazine summed it up pretty well including perhaps the sentiments of TN9 and when she said India has to be a giver more than a taker one example she mentioned Why don't Indian companies endow more seats in foreign universities? Anyway, to get a better sense, I caught up with her and began by asking her how she was viewing the whole visit and its outcomes. 
if India is saying that we are a rising nation, we are a rising power, we are a leading power, then we have to stop acting like a poor developing country. We are a country on the move. The rest of the world, in fact, the developed world is because the world is changing and because countries like us are rising. Uh, other parts of the world are in transition as well. We don't know where they're going to land. But one or two of the things that developed countries like the U.S. and the European Union can be helped with is the high cost of everything. So they have a very high standard of living, but it also means that the cost of everything is very high. And this is something that India can do because we are known for three or four things. The affordable, accessible, adaptable, and appropriate. That's what India does with everything, right? We've got a large population. Everything has to be appropriate and accessible and affordable for them. So let's start with healthcare. We have the world's largest generic industry. Uh, medication is, is affordable. We, we really did not fall in with the IPR regime until much later. But what has happened is now we know through the vaccine that it is the affordable medication that works. And the United States is 60%, I believe, is India's, or at least generic medicine. The rest of it is very heavy IPR-driven medication. That's one thing. The second thing is that India has, Indian technology companies are embedded into U.S. insurance companies, U.S. pharma companies. And this is, they know where all the fat is. They know where that can be trimmed. They just need to be told that, Instead of working for their clients, they can now work in a bilateral manner and clean up the system from the inside, right? And this has also made U.S. healthcare uh, unaffordable for most people. The, the highest level of U.S. healthcare looks at how the individual can be serviced. Actually, society needs to be serviced, and that's what India does. So those are two ways through, uh, through uh, generic medicines and also through uh, our technology companies knowing where to trip the fat. That's one thing. So that can be a good bilateral um, engagement. And lastly, there is something called medical technology. You may not recall, or you may recall, many years ago, uh, there was a startup in Bangalore that tried to create in one instrument six methods of testing. They could test your blood pressure. They could test your temperature. They could take your blood, uh, your blood, etc. And they could do an ECG. And it really cost about $200. What happened was that General Electric bought out that, uh, that startup and created for mass use exactly a product like this so at a slightly higher price. Now, this is what India, again, so MedTech, pharmaceutical, low cost of pharma, generic pharma, and uh, technology can help the U.S. sector. The second is digitization. The India stack it is not... Um, it doesn't. It is open source, open network. We know what it's done for financial inclusion worldwide, and it has enabled India to be a very, very highly digitized country. I think after maybe after China, we're the second most digitized society and citizenry in the world. This needs to be taken across two countries like the U.S. And to do this, this shouldn't just be a G to G. This is where we get our our wealthy, our billionaires, our Silicon Valley, Bangalore connections. We get Bombay and New York. Uh, we get the government sectors, the NGOs to work together 
and make this. So together with that, we can also then parlay this into through the two or three plurilateral engagements that we have specifically with the U.S. One is the Quad, and one is I2U2, which is India and Israel and the United States and UAE. Uh, in the UAE and India are already putting this to work. There's no reason why the U.S. can't do it. Right. And uh, last question, uh, Manjeet. How could Indian companies, given the structure or uh, the landscape that you've just painted for us, how could Indian companies take advantage of this new bonhomme, if you were to call it that? Well, the Indian companies are going to have a wonderful time. There is billions of dollars worth of deals that have taken place. This means that they can up their technology. Uh, they can also up their capacity levels and they have to start training their people because we've we've taken so much from the US, we also have to have the ability to receive it. And Indian companies really, this is the time for them to step up. I think for the last maybe 10 years, maybe less, maybe seven or eight years, Indian companies are kind of resting on their laurels a little bit. But given that there are Indian companies present in almost all the 50 states of the US, this is the time for them to step up to the bilateral and start participating. So capacity building, really putting their people to learn about new technology, helping with the education. There are almost no chairs that Indian companies have for any kind of technology, just not at all. And this is something they can learn from their counterparts in the US. How to endow chairs, specific technologies. They must bring US expertise to India to teach and to learn them and also their society around them. So they can have a wonderful time and, you know, we were just looking at the list of uh, billionaires uh, in, in the Forbes list. The United States has, is the tops at 734. China has four, I think, 95. And India is the next best with 169. We've got almost 170 billion billionaires and million billionaires. I mean, that is absolutely fantastic. So these are the people that need to start investing in the ecosystem to pull India up to the level at which it belongs and so does everybody else, not just them, but to the society. Right. Manji, thank you so much for uh, your thoughts and sharing it with us. Thank you. Meanwhile, among other impact of general bonhomie between the two countries, India will remove additional duties on eight U.S. products, including chickpeas, almonds, lentils, and apples, which were imposed in 2019 in response to the U.S. increasing tariffs on certain steel and aluminum products. The duty on the products ranged from 10 to 20 percent, according to reports. The U.S. is India's largest trading partner. In 22-23, the bilateral goods trade increased to $129 billion as against $119 billion in the previous year. Washington State's 1,400 apple growers are eagerly and apparently looking forward to entering the Indian market again, reports said. Goldman's 2075, that's the year 2075 predictions and predictions in general. Trends in globalization have ebbed and flowed since at least the 12th century, when Genghis Khan secured commerce along the Silk Road and the cycles of business, technology and politics that shape economic growth are short, typically five years. As a result, any forecast that looks beyond the next cycle or two, that's five to ten years, is likely to be way off the mark. Predictions that look 20 to 100 years into the future 
cannot possibly survive change in the intervening years. New economic competitors can rise as China did in the early 1980s or as Eastern Europe did in 90s. New technology can emerge. When a country like Japan, China or India grows rapidly for a decade, analysts should be looking at not for reasons the streak will continue, but the moment the cycle will turn. All this, so far by the way, are not my words, but the words of well-known columnist and author Ruchir Sharma in his book, 10 Rules of Successful Nations. Sharma makes a seminal point in his book that it is hard to sustain rapid economic growth. At the time he wrote this book, he was chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. This was written in 2016 and revised in a 2020 edition. Finally, Sharma quotes psychologist Philip Tetlock, who has apparently put thousands of predictions to test. In his book, Super Forecasting, he presents evidence confirming that forecasts get less reliable the further they reach into the future and they become no more accurate than random guesses beyond five years. Now, with that backdrop in mind, which I felt is important to keep in mind for everyone, including myself, since I do showcase quite a few distant forecasts, if nothing else, to start the week on a happy note. So now let's come to this week's far out prediction. Goldman Sachs has revealed long-term growth projections for the global economy covering 104 countries out into the year 2075, including the key insight that it expects India to record the largest increase in global market capitalization share from a little under 3% in 2022 to 8% in 2050 and 12% in 2075, reflecting a favorable demographic outlook and rapid GDP per capita growth. Broadly, Goldman expects emerging market growth to continue to outstrip developed markets over the remainder of this decade, 3.8% versus 1.8%. And that is a fairly useful current insight to store away and definitely more near term. For 2050, Goldman projects that the world's five largest economies measured in US dollars will be China, the United States, India, Indonesia and Germany. By 2075, China, the US and India are likely to remain the three largest economies and with the right policies and institutions, Goldman says, seven of the world's top 10 economies are projected to be emerging markets. Goldman says it's converting its long-term GDP calculations into estimates of future equity market capitalization by leaning on the fact that equity market capitalization to GDP ratios tend to increase with GDP per capita. Given the convergence taking place in emerging market GDP per capita levels, it implies that emerging market equity assets are likely to grow more rapidly than GDP, it says. Openness to trade and capital flows is a necessary condition for the successful development of capital markets. Of the many risks to Goldman's projections, it says that it views the possibility that populist nationalism leads to increased protectionism and a reversal of globalization as the most significant. By the way, Ruchish Sharma quotes Goldman Sachs researchers in his books from earlier reports when he says that looking back 150 years, researchers found dozens of great stagnations or slums that lowered a nation's average income relative to its peers. Of these slums, 90 lasted at least 6 years and 26 spanned more than 10 years. The longest lasted 23 years and struck India in 1930. The impermanence of economic conditions means that one can never extrapolate current trends into the distant future, Sharma says. Coming back to the present and 
surely more happy news. And speaking of emerging capital markets, it's raining initial public offers with at least seven large and small IPOs lined up in the next week, according to a report in the Economic Times. What struck me as I scratched the surface a little is that at least five of these companies are manufacturing-based and have been around for a while. A sign that the capital market itself is once again welcoming a wider portfolio of businesses, including traditional manufacturing. Moreover, most of these companies have been around for a while. Pentagon Rubber, which makes rubber conveyor and transmission belts, has been around since 1969. The year man landed on the moon and the Boeing 747 was launched. Just saying. And Global PET, which makes PET stretch blow molding machines, has been around 25 years, though about a decade as a company. And then there is drone manufacturer Idea Forge, which everyone is talking about, an electronics manufacturing company called Cent DLM, which mostly builds for others, though complex and sophisticated parts, including those used in aircraft and satellites, but has been around for 30 years from what I could see. Idea Forge is younger, but not exactly a startup, though people might be tempted to refer to it given the tech halo. It was set up in 2007 or 15 years ago in IIT Bombay. Speaking about raining IPOs, the real rains are here as well. Heavy rains hit Mumbai and Delhi on Saturday night as the monsoon apparently reached both cities together. Possibly this was to make Delhi walas feel better and less discriminated against. The monsoons were two weeks late into Mumbai, according to the Indian Meteorological Department, and two days earlier into Delhi. This was a rare occurrence and apparently last happened in 1961. But the southwest monsoon is active now and has covered many parts of the country. I did do a delayed monsoon check with economist Madan Sabnavis in my Friday podcast last week, and we'll do an economist catch up on Wednesday, more to understand where we are and whether we've made up for that lost time. When I say we, I do mean the agricultural economy in specific and macro economy at large. Mumbai saw its usual share of flooded subways and flyovers, building collapses, including one in Ville Parle in the suburbs. and tragedy two men drowned after falling into a manhole of an overflowing drain in the city's north central suburbs on saturday evening officials said the two men had been carrying out routine water flow tests the santa cruz observatory in mumbai recorded 88 mm of rainfall between 5:30 and 7:30 pm on saturday that's it from me then do welcome the rains but do stay safe wherever you are and have a great week ahead This was the core report with me Govind Raj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you. including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector write to us at feedback@thecore.in at thank you for listening